Harry, I see you've discovered the delights of the mirror of Erised. It shows us the deepest, most deep, desperate desires of our heart, said Dumbledore. The mirror of Erised, which backwards spells desire, is an emotive scene in Harry Potter 1. Harry looks into the mirror and doesn't see his own reflection. He sees his deepest desire. And it's two people, his late parents, James and Lily Potter. This morning, I'd like you to imagine that you're looking into the mirror of Erised. What would you see? What is the deepest desire of your heart? Maybe it's your family, your kids. Maybe it's a friendship that's very special. Maybe it's freedom or rest or justice or your beloved. The desires of our heart are part of God's amazing design. God made us to live with him in a garden teeming with life and change, not in a safe science room. God gave us emotions and affections. He built two complementary image bearers who are equal and wonderfully different. And God made us to relate and talk and feel and discover and risk and explore and love. Any picture that we have where life is cold or boring or robotic is not biblical. Yet we all know our desires are distorted by sin. Your desires, my desires, they lead to actions that cause friction and conflict. Our desires cause pain and damage for ourselves and others. And some of our desires, we misdirect them. We focus them so much on a good and temporary thing, sex, and we do that over the God who made us, the good thing, the best thing, and that's called idolatry. Our culture tells us that the mirror of Erised should actually only have one image, ourselves. Because your greatest desire should be your own personal happiness. Like all distorted desires, the pursuit of self will always lead to a burden and disappointment and loneliness. So today, what is God's good wisdom for the deepest desire of our heart. The Song of Song takes us there in chapter 7, verse 10. And she says this, I am my loves and his desire is for me. She has a man who's looked into the mirror of Erised and he sees her. And his desires are for her good, her needs, her well-being, and she feels it. And this is the biblical picture of love. Not that we look in the mirror and go, I need to love myself. But I look into the mirror and I see another. It's a shadow of God's love for us. And as our song finishes this morning, all the characters are going to reappear again. And they've all got something to say about this nature of love. It's love that gets right to the core of your deepest desires this morning. It's a love that is permanent, protective, and persistent. So number one, permanent love. Who starts our finale? The girlfriend's friends, the woman's girlfriends. 
they begin with a delightful snapshot of love. Have a look at verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the one she loves? We see the couple coming out of the wilderness like Israel coming out of the wilderness on their pilgrimage to the promised land. And the picture isn't erotic, right? We're not thinking about sex here. We just have a picture of two people leaning on each other. It's like two young lovers sitting at a table in a restaurant, yabbering, yabbering, yabbering until the guys just throw them out at midnight, right? Or it's the picture of that old couple in orange who've just done a lap of Cook Park every day for 60 years, leaning on each other in trustful dependence. Then we hear the woman reminisce about her love. Look at 5b. I awakened you under the apricot tree. There your mother conceived you. There she conceived and gave you birth. Okay, lots of action happened under the apricot tree. Now we've got to remember this is poetry. Okay, so it's poetry, which means the orchard, the apple, the apricot, in the song, it's a picture of sacred, beautiful, fruitful love. So what she's saying here is she is so thankful that his parents found true love and he is the result of that love. And now this couple are under the same tree and experiencing the same true love and God willing, the family tree may continue. Okay, it sounds a bit Bridgerton, but she doesn't want to fling. Look at verse 6. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A person's seal in the ancient world was very, very valuable. It was made of a precious metal or gems and you kept it close. You kept it round your neck or kept it as a ring. And your seal represented you. If you stamped it on a document, you were committed. If you stamped it on an object, it was ownership. And see what she says? Place me as a seal over your heart. Isn't it stunning? She's saying, let there be an internal bond of commitment. And then she says, place me as a seal on your arm. Let this commitment be public. Because in true love, you need both. You can't just have external, a ring on your finger and no love in your heart, nor can you just feel lots of love in your heart and not be willing to do something publicly. Because feelings are fickle. True love is permanent. It's stronger than dopamine. It's as stubborn as death. No human being, none of us here, can resist the power of death. And true love has the same power. The Bible says it's a fire that cannot be extinguished. It's jealous. Not in that negative sense where you demand exclusivity in a friendship. That's just inappropriate. Not that. No, no, it's totally appropriate jealousy. It's the passionate commitment of body and will to one. Idealistic? Yeah. 
and no. Because what the song's doing here is presenting marital love at its best. It's not Netflix lust, right? It's committed, heterosexual, self-giving, exclusive, lifelong, passionate marital love. Till death does us part. And if you're sitting next to your husband or wife this morning, it's a reminder to you this morning of the public promises you made before God. And the song is also realistic. If you see verse 7, it recognises that there are forces that will threaten to snuff out the love. The rivers may come. And that's because true love is a fight. And it's a fight that can be broken. As those of us in the room who have experienced a broken home can testify. But significantly, this grand picture of love, it points beyond itself to God. See verse 6. Love's flames are a fiery flame, an almighty flame. In the Hebrew, and probably in your footnotes, it tells you actually what it is. It says this. Love keeps burning like the flame of Yah. Yah is the shorthand version for Yahweh, the name of the Lord. It's the only time the name of God is mentioned in the entire book. And what it's saying is this. If you look at marriage in its best, i.e. the lovers in this book, it's only a pale reflection of the love of God. C.S. Lewis writes, I was standing today in the dark toolshed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the toolshed. Everything else was almost pitch black. But then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes and instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no toolshed. And above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. See his point? The ray is beautiful. But when you put your eyes in the ray and look up, you see the great, the great source of it. Marriage is great, but it's just a ray. It's only a snapshot of the love of your God. And his love is steadfast, permanent, jealous for you, for me. His love has a blazing intensity that can never be extinguished. Lots of forces have tried, haven't they? No more so when God came to earth in Jesus. Yet on that cross, the love of God was most supremely expressed. The love of God is permanent. Enter the brothers. These are the same brothers as chapter 1. Remember them? Well, they're concerned for their little sister. Now, we don't know if that's the woman herself now looking back, or whether it's another younger sister. We also don't know if the brother's concern is godly or commercial. They're maximising the value of this girl when they get to marry her off. What we do know is this. 
the brother's protective actions will depend on her choices. If she's a wall, i.e. she stops men coming in who are not invited, then they will ornament her. They will strengthen her. They'll build a silver beautiful tower to increase her strength and beauty. But if she's a door, if she's promiscuous, if she lets men come in at not the right time, then these brothers will enclose her with panels of cedar to help her resist temptation. Now, it doesn't sound very loving, does it? It sounds kind of Victorian or conservative or patriarchal, right? But that's because we have been more influenced by our culture, go for it, be happy, no limits, than God. In God's good design, sexual desire is powerful. You and me, we've got the engines of a Ferrari and the brakes of a scooter. We need to help to harness our sexual desire in a way that is good for us and good for others because it can lead to terrible damage. Malcolm Muggridge is a journalist and he was at a party and he was talking to a woman who shared that she'd been seduced by the writer H.G. Wells. Muggridge, blunt dude, right? He goes, how did it happen? She says this. Wells said to me at a cocktail party, should we go upstairs and do something funny? Muggridge asked, was it funny? She said, no, sir, it was not funny. That evening has caused me more misery than any other moment in my life. Please never think sexual sin is just a mistake. I told a lie, it doesn't matter. Uh -uh. Sexual sin undermines future marriages. Sexual sin undermines present marriages. And porn trains you in your brain to treat another human being as a performer. Now, wonderfully in the gospel, there is utter forgiveness for all sexual sin. And we all need to delight in that. But we also need to remember before heaven, the damage and the scars in your memory and being prone to future temptation will linger. And that is why in God's wisdom, sexual desire is not a private matter. Culturally, it's private. In the Bible, it's about community. It's not kept in the shadows where sin likes to play. God gives us each other to help with our sexual desire, with our Ferrari engines. And so we need to listen to God's word together on this topic and we need friends, good friends, who will speak graciously and honestly to each other on this area. And we desperately need friends who will help one another. Together at Church at 1045, we need to partner with parents. What a brilliant group of teenagers and young kids we have. Those parents need our support as they disciple these kids through the moral minefield. The people next to you that are your parents, they need your prayers. 
and the grandparents need your prayers. And then they need you to share good news stories that encourage them to have the awkward conversations because they are awkward, aren't they? They need to make time to read the books with their kids. Yes, we're busy, but it's worth it. And they need help to set protective walls that are not politically correct. And they need help navigating very tricky times. And as a church, we need to celebrate purity. Celebrate singleness. Celebrate waiting. Celebrate grace. That's protective love. The song doesn't lay all the responsibility on others, does it? The woman takes responsibility for herself. I love it there. She says, verse 10, I'm a wall. I have protected myself for my husband. That hasn't been easy for this woman. She's grown up in the world of men like Solomon who have used their power to fulfill their sexual urges. It's just like men today. Now Solomon, he was seen as the greatest and wisest man to ever live. How could he have been wise and marry 700 women? How could he keep 700 mothers-in-laws happy? He failed spectacularly, didn't he? He failed to be God's king, Deuteronomy 18. And he failed God's design for love. And so in the finale of the Song of Songs, she compares herself to King Solomon. He had a beautiful vineyard. We know that's his harem. This guy had love and sex whenever he wanted it. A modern man's dream. And he added to that harem regularly. By making an offer families couldn't refuse. 1,000 pieces of silver for your girl. Number 701, come on down. But there was one woman who told Solomon where to stick his shekels. She said, don't try and buy me. Her vineyard was her own to give. Did you notice the names linked to Solomon and the woman? Solomon's world of sexual pleasure is Baal Hamon. His loose, promiscuous lust is linked to a false god. The woman's perspective, her protective, permanent, marital love is linked to the name of Yah, Yahweh. And so she sits there not jealous of Solomon. Oh, sure, you've got all these women, Solomon, but I'm not jealous of you because she has a contentment he will never have. Her God is not a killjoy. Her God knew what was good for her. And so she trusted him. Persistent love. Verse 13, you who dwell in the gardens, companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. We finally hear from the man. 
He looks and sees his woman talking with her friends and he feels excluded. Has she forgotten him? Does she still love him? Has she still got time to speak to him amongst her work and children and hobbies? He's a good man. He doesn't crawl into his cave. His love is persistent. He speaks. He says, let me hear your voice. And she replies, verse 14, run away with me, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Smashes the stereotype, doesn't it? He says, let's talk. She says, I won't finish. God's design for love and intimacy is celebrated right to the end of this wonderful book. And actually, we don't know what happens, do we? We're not told what happens. Because the book ends with unresolved desire. We don't know what happens next. And that's good, actually. That's exactly the way this book is meant to be written. Because a bunch of you are sitting here this morning totally satisfied. Marriage is good. Friendship's good. Life's good. And there's a whole bunch of you sitting here today who are deeply, deeply dissatisfied. You are not happy in what life is like you want something different to what you've got you have this frustration and longing for something more do you know what the bible says is that's true for everyone because no matter how good your relationships are how good school is how good the world is how good friendship is how good your marriage is you will always want more that is in god's design because you are made to be in a loving relationship with your maker And he wants to be in a relationship with you. And that is the love story of the Bible. The love story of the Bible is we have rejected the great God. Yet God has loved us. He has pursued us. He has won us back through the sacrifice of his own son. And God's love is permanent. An unquenchable fire, stronger than death, protective and jealous. Our God wants us for himself. And he invites every single one of us to come out of the wilderness into a relationship with him through Jesus. Have you? Have you come out of the wilderness into a relationship with Jesus? You'll know you have because when you look into the mirror of Erised, you'll see only one person, the Lord Jesus. You'll not see yourself. At the deepest desire of your heart, you will see your Saviour and your Lord. And you will say, he gives me rest, he gives me meaning, he gives me joy, he gives me peace. Because Christianity is not about doing right things. Christianity is not about turning up to church. Christianity is all about desiring Christ more than marriage, more than sex, more than sport, more than a career, more than having children, more than getting married. Because Jesus Christ is wonderful and desirable above everything else. Did you notice the Bible also ends with unresolved desire? 
Because the Bible also reflects that we're not there yet. You cannot be closer to Christ than you are today if you're a Christian because you're in Christ. Yet, we keep sinning. And we experience physical separation from our God. We live by faith, not by sight. And so what is the Christian life? It's persistent love. It is eagerly awaiting the wedding of Jesus and us when all the aches and gaps and loneliness and sin and tension and pain are gone forever. Because on our wedding day with Jesus, we will see our King in all his beauty. So like the lovers in Song of Song, we commit to persistent love. We need to fight desire busters, which steal our heart from Jesus. And we join with every other Christian in the world, saying one word, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.